Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We have been discussing the perseverance of the saints. Last week, I attempted to define that for you and to start pointing out some of the subtle differences between perseverance of the saints and eternal security. And I have made a terrible mistake this week. I've been listening to several anti-Calvinist YouTube screechers. And... um, in their attempt to undermine the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, they almost always go to experience. You do see people make a profession of faith in Christianity and then fall away. And so how do we deal with that? How do we look at that biblically? How do we understand that fact theologically? Because it is a fact. We here at GCA over the last 19 years have seen people come and go. And some of them have gone on to other churches, but some of them have just gone on to the way of the world. They just went back to the very place they came from. So how do we deal with that? Either we have to say that God actively saved them, that they were at one time in a state where we could say that they were saved and that the almighty power of God and the Holy Spirit of God was overthrown because that person decided not to be saved anymore. And as I said last week, if God saves you by his almighty power, it would also take that same almighty power to unsave you. So... What kind of biblical categories can we find in order to understand this particular phenomena of people appearing to be in the faith and then leaving? Well, one of the realities of the Bible is that God sees all of humanity as divided into two groups, and it starts immediately. It starts as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. From that point forward, God starts referring to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is that blessed lineage. And the seed of the serpent is the cursed line on the planet. What you don't find anywhere in the Bible is people who are the lineage of the serpent suddenly becoming the lineage of the woman. You don't find that kind of change. Instead, what you find is the language of, like Jesus saying, my sheep know my voice, and they will follow me. Well, the reason that the sheep follow Jesus is because they are indeed his sheep. When he's talking to the Pharisees and explaining to them why they don't believe him, He says, it's because you're not my sheep. And because you are not my sheep, you don't have the ability to understand what I'm saying. You're not going to follow me. So Jesus even spoke in those kind of categories. Sheep, not sheep. Line of the woman, line of the serpent. And you see that kind of language throughout the Bible. When you look at like 2 Peter 2, 21 to 22, Somebody look it up real quick and I'll, I'll have you read it. But Peter says that it happened according to the true proverb that when some had turned away from Christ, he said it wasn't that they used to be sheep and then became pigs and dogs. Instead, what he says is they always were pigs and dogs. And that's why they went back to acting like pigs and dogs, because that's the way pigs and dogs act. Sheep follow. 
dogs back to their vomit, pigs back to their mud. So it is an innate characteristic of the particular people that they are either sheep-like or they are pig and dog-like. Those categories permeate the Bible. Tom, you want to read that for us? Read uh, 2 Peter 2, 21 and 22. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now you'll notice that Peter said that's according to the true proverb. As we've been studying the book of Proverbs on Wednesday night, we came across that proverb. So Peter isn't making anything up brand new. It's not a novelty he's creating. He instead is recognizing the same thing that Solomon said, which is the same thing that God said, which is the same thing that Jesus said. Again, it permeates the Bible, this idea of there being two categories within humankind. There are the saved elect since before the foundation of the world, and there are those who are not elect since before the foundation of the world. Paul, writing to the Romans, says that there are vessels of mercy and there are vessels of wrath. And he says that they were fitted for destruction. So it really doesn't matter where in the Bible you look. From beginning to end, you keep finding these category distinctions between sheep, goats, lineage of the woman, lineage of the serpent. You keep finding that continually. If you would, turn to Matthew 13. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. And we're going to read a good amount of this particular chapter. Uh, This is Jesus teaching. And you will notice that what he does in this parable is he creates categories. There are categories of people. The seed that goes out and falls on the different kinds of ground is all good seed. Whether or not that seed takes root and produces fruit is a matter of what kind of ground it is. And when Jesus explains his own parable, that's how he explains it, as various different categories of people. The parable goes like this. Starting in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, Jesus went out of the house. He was sitting by the sea. A great multitude gathered to him so that he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away, and others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell upon good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. When we were working our way through the book of Matthew, I took the time to dig into that parable and explain more of the detail. We won't take the time to do that today, except to say that Jesus was explaining something that the people he was speaking to could relate to. They understood that in order to grow any kind of crop, you had to first prepare the field. And you had to create good rows of soil into which the seed could root and sprout and bear fruit. But there were also pathways through the field. And as the sower was throwing out the seed, he would walk along the pathways. And his walking on the pathways made the ground harder. In the midst of preparing the field for planting, you'd have to get all the rocks out of it. And you would collect all the rocks into an area of the field. 
so that there was particularly rocky soil. Jesus, when explaining it that way, it's harder for us to understand because we're not out there gardening every day or planting large fields every day. And if we were, we would have a harvester combine. We wouldn't be out there doing it by hand. But people who were spreading seed by hand wore a bag of seed and they would reach into the bag, grab a handful of the seed, and then disperse it. And some of that seed would fall on the good ground. Some would fall on the path that he was walking on. Some along the edges would fall on the rocky soil. And so Jesus used that example in order to talk about the way the word of God is disseminated and received by different categories of people. When the disciples came to him, they said to him, why do you speak in parables? He answered and said to them, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. What did Jesus just do? He just created categories of people. To you it's been granted to know it. You are going to understand it. But to them, it hasn't been given. So the difference between people who understand it and don't understand it is whether or not they've been given the ability to understand it. It is God who gives the ability to understand. And if he gave it to this person and not that person, he just created two categories of people. You will also notice that he does not ever create multiplicities of categories. The categories are either saved and believing, faithful people, or vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Those are really the only two categories that you find throughout the Bible. Later on in this same chapter then, because they want to know the explanation, starting at verse 18, he says, Here then, the parable of the sower. This is really advantageous because Jesus is now going to interpret his own parable. So we don't have to interpret it. And by the way, let me add, if your interpretation of it is any different than what Jesus says, your interpretation is wrong because he has already told you what the correct interpretation is. He says it's this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, remember a moment ago he said they don't understand it because it wasn't given to them to understand it? They are the category of people who can't understand. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, we know that's the devil, Satan himself, comes and snatches it. He snatches away what has been sown in their heart, and this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road, along the path, the stomp down path. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus just explained to us what is actually happening when you see people come to faith, look like they're part of us, look like they're part of the church and all things Christian, people who are attracted to Christianity, and then they fall away. Jesus explains that that happens. And it's not that he lost them, it's that, number one, they were never really given the perseverance to continue in the faith. They weren't given what the other category of people were given. But secondly, it's the type of soil they are. They are rocky soil. And because they are not good soil, they hear the word and they immediately receive it with joy. I cannot tell you the number of people through the years who have said to me or written to me and said, this is wonderful. I'm so happy to hear what you are teaching. This is just unbelievable. And boy, I am for you. You can count on me. I'll be right there with you to the end. 
This is the truth. They're gone. You can't find those people. It's because of that experience that John Riesinger once said that with the number of people who ever would come to him and say exactly that, oh, Mr. Riesinger, what you're saying is so wonderful. It's changed my life. I'm going to be with you forever. You can count on me. I'm going to be right there by your side. He said he would always respond, well, time and the devil will tell. And that's true. Because look, this man hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no firm root in himself. Why? Because the soil is rocky, so it can't get down and get a good root and get fed, get good water. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So he's willing to be part of that whole Christian thing as long as it feeds him, as long as it's good for him, as long as it's all joy, happiness, and kumbaya. But the minute trouble comes, the minute opposition comes, the minute that difficulty comes, I would add the minute that some part of their Christian profession is offensive to their ego, immediately they fall away. Now that's Jesus talking, and he just explained to you that there are people who will give every appearance of loving the word of God and all things Christian, but then when things get difficult, when there's any kind of trouble, when they're confronted, well, they just fall away. So Jesus himself said people can fall away. Notice that Jesus did not say that he lost them. The reason they fell away was because they were rocky soil to begin with. The fact that they are rocky soil is why they can't have any plants with firm roots. It's because of what they're like. That's a category of people. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns... This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus has now described three types of soil and told us that those soils are commensurate with types of people and so far three of the four aren't good soil. So far three of the four categories, two of those three can look like they really get it, like they're into it, like they care about it. The man who hears the word, but then the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he doesn't bear fruit. Or a man who hears the word, and he immediately receives it with joy, but because he doesn't have any firm root, it's only temporary. And then when affliction, persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So Jesus does explain to you that there are types of people who will appear as if they are committed to all things Christian. But it's the trials it's the difficulties, it's the persecution that is going to tell the men from the boys. It is the troubles of this world or the deceitfulness of the riches of this world that is going to separate the truly faithful from those who fall away. But I'm going to stress this point. Jesus himself says some people will fall away. Notice again, he does not say, they were sheep and I lost them. I was trying so hard to hold on to them, but there was nothing I could do because of their superior willfulness. Even though I am the almighty God incarnate, I was not able to hold on to them. Instead, what he says is they left because, just like John says, they were never really of us. They were rocky soil. They were packed down soil. Thank goodness for verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed 
bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Notice again that Jesus did not say everybody's going to produce the same fruit and the same amount of fruit. Instead, what he says is they are going to produce fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 90, but they're all going to be fruit-bearing, which is why we as Christians are not called to be fruit inspectors. It's why we are not called to compare ourselves and our level of commitment and Christianity and our fruit-bearing to other people's fruit-bearing because everybody who is bearing fruit Jesus counts as among the faithful. And really, Jesus' opinion is much more valid than yours. Last week, Micah asked me if we were going to, during this study, get into the parable of the wheat and the tares. Well, if you read the very next verse, we're kind of there. So let's take a quick look at it. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed into his field. He's just described the parable of the sower, a man who is putting good seed. It's quality seed that he's putting out there into his field. The seed is not the problem. It's the type of soil that determines whether or not there's going to be fruit bearing. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field And while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. In other words, he planted weeds, knowing that the weeds would grow up and choke the good produce. When the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have these weeds, these tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Should we go pull up the weeds? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Two categories. Are you getting tired of this yet? Two categories. Wheat that ends up in the barn of the owner of the field, weeds that are going to be bundled up at the harvest, And thrown into the furnace. Two completely different categories. Now Jesus was talking about the kingdom of heaven here. How you interpret that. He could be talking about the whole world. And saying that God initially put Adam, a righteous man, into his garden. And then sin entered in. And that was the work of the enemy. Or he may be saying since we're talking about good seed being put into good soil, he may also be saying that his church, that he is actively building, those who are following him, those that are faithful to him, that body collectively will occasionally be invaded by people who are truly of the enemy. People who, though they are growing in the same field, are actually trying to choke out the good fruit. You can understand it either way. In either case, the end result is that Jesus yet again says there's two categories. There's good fruit-bearing wheat, and there's weeds that try to choke out the good fruit. One ends up in the furnace, the other ends up in the barn. What you can't avoid, regardless of how you interpret those parables, what you can't avoid is that Jesus created categories of people in order to explain how it is that some people leave the faith. And if you say that leaving the faith is a demonstration that the perseverance of the saints is not correct, 
then you're not really being biblical because the Bible itself already explains why and how and that some people do give the appearance. They spring up quickly. They receive it with great joy. But then when the trouble comes, they leave. So if Jesus can explain that, driving John again to say they went out from us because they weren't really ever of us. And he says, and this is the most important, I think the most telling part of that statement, is John says they went out from us to make manifest that they were never of us. That is the demonstration. That is the proof that they were never of us. Had they been of us, John says, they would have stayed with us. They would have remained with us. But the very fact that they went out from us is proof that they weren't ever really of us. We didn't know it. We couldn't tell it. We accepted them. We accepted their profession. We accepted them based on the joy that they were demonstrating as they were rising up quickly. But then because pigs and dogs always go back to their mud, always go back to their wallow, always go back to their vomit, when those who were never really any part of us go away, that is just a sure demonstration that they weren't ever really of us. And so when you see people fall away from the faith, it is not a demonstration that the the idea of the perseverance of the saints or the sovereign ability of the Lord God and Jesus Christ to hold on to his own people, it is not evidence that that's not true. In fact, what it is, is evidence that those people were not truly saved, demonstrated by the fact that they left and went back to the place they came from. Make sense? Yes, sir. To be more convinced... And, and I hope that with each piece of evidence, I'm convincing you more and more that this concept of the saints persevering is true. Think for just a moment about what kind of life Jesus says he gives his people. Because what he says to them is that he's giving them eternal life, eternal salvation. Now, Jesus who has ever been with the Father, knows what eternality is, much more so than we temporal human beings can possibly know. And so when the eternal one speaks of eternality, he would be the only one who actually knows what he's talking about. He's the only one who can say something is everlasting and know what that means. Because his Father is from everlasting to everlasting. And he has ever been with his father. So when he says to you that he gives you everlasting life, well then how do you twist that in such a way as to make it temporal life? How do you twist that to say God who does not live in time, who is not limited by the restrictions of time, that when he says everlasting how can you twist that in such a way as to say but what he means is it's a temporary saving that he's doing of you even though he's calling it eternal it's a temporary thing and then later in life you can lose it you can change your mind and as I argued last week that means he changed his mind the God who never changes changed his mind gave up on you forget it I was trying to save you, but never mind. Human beings, because we are egocentric, we are sinner-centric, we're centered on ourselves, we like to think that we could lose our salvation based on us, based on something we do, some decision that we make, some sin that we perform, some rebellion that we're engaged in. And so we think that it's up to us to keep ourselves saved. But you have to see the biblical perspective, which is that the salvation of human beings is God's enterprise, and he saves them everlastingly. And therefore, for a person who is saved to lose his salvation, it can only be the result of him, the one who saved you to begin with. He would have to unsave you. He would have to give up on you. He would have to change his mind 
And he would have to use that almighty saving power and that infilling of the Holy Spirit that he gave you. He would have to renege on all that and say, Holy Spirit, come out of that man, come back to me. And he would have to use his almighty power to take you out of your regenerative born again state to drive you back to the very sinful depravity that he saved you from. He knew you were like that to begin with. So what exactly could you do or could any other person do, any other creature do? What could anybody do that would cause God to take his almighty power, turn it backwards and unsave the people that he saved, knowing full well that they were like that when he saved them? Got it? I'm willing to listen if you've got an answer. This salvation, it's, we say it, we say it doctrinally, we repeat it, but I, I just don't think we really spend enough time grasping the reality of what we're told in the Bible. The salvation of the elect of God was determined before the foundation of the world. And if that is the fact, then what circumstances and occurrences could happen in the life of the world that would change what he determined to do before he made the world? Does that make sense? Yes. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17, says, If you address the Father the one who impartially judges according to every man's work, then conduct yourselves in fear, that means reverence, during the time of your stay, the NASB adds two words, here upon earth. Oh, that'd be three words. They actually add two, upon earth. I threw in the third. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to every man's work, then conduct yourself in reverence toward that one you're calling the father during the time of your stay upon earth. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That means that the determination of God before he did anything was that it was going to be his son who was ultimately going to get all the glory and his son was going to come to the planet in order to redeem particular people and that was the determination of God before the beginning. I'll read the rest of it, but I have a hard time believing that God, if he changed his mind, would not only have to use his almighty power to unsave you and take the Holy Spirit back and unregenerate you and make you not born again, but he would also be turning his back on the promises he made to his son before the foundation of the world. And you're not big enough to pull that off because this is about his glory, his reputation knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. How did you become believers in God? Through Christ, who God foreknew before the foundation of the world. That's why you believe, and all of that would have to be undone for him to lose you. He raised him from the dead. He gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. All right, let me put that whole thing together. Listen to this sentence. It's a, it's a remarkable sentence. For he was foreknown, Christ was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. 
But Christ has appeared here on the planet, here in these last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers of God. For what reason did he come to the planet? For the sake of those who through him are believers in God. That's why he appeared. Because God, determined to save some people, was going to give faith to certain people, was going to redeem those people, and so he came to the planet for those people. He came to the planet. He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Look, this is eternal salvation. And that means it doesn't just reach back as far as back goes, as far as history goes into eternity, but then it reaches forward into whatever's coming. Remember that God is outside of time. He's not hampered. He's not restricted by time. And so the salvation that he gives to his people is a salvation that was determined before he did anything. And then it comes to fruition in time, and then it is sustained through all of eternity future. That's the kind of salvation we're talking about. We're not just talking about a temporary thing. We're not talking about an accident of history. We're not talking about God choosing you just in case you got good. Instead, what we're talking about is determinations by God before he did anything and those determinations last for as long as he lasts. That's the kind of salvation you've been given. Truly eternal salvation. But not only that, as if that were not enough. And certainly that would be enough for just about everybody. But the catalyst that began the entire venture was the everlasting love of God. Which means, again, that if he lost you, he went from ever loving you to not loving you anymore. Well, that would not be everlasting love. That would be temporal love. That would be love that was conditioned on you and how you are and what you do instead of being conditioned on the character and nature of God himself who chose to put his everlasting love on you. And the great demonstration of how everlasting that love is, is that he sent his son for you. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, again, just grappling with this idea of everlastingness in order to describe and define what eternal means. I know that whatever God does it shall be forever. That's what eternal is. When God makes eternal judgments, eternal jurisdictions, when he makes eternal decisions, I know that whatever God doeth, it's forever. By virtue of the fact that he is the forever God. By virtue of the fact that he is everlasting, then he does not make decisions that don't join his everlastingness. I know that whatever God doeth, it shall be forever. Then notice, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. If this sounds familiar, we were just reading in the book of Proverbs on Wednesday night the importance of not adding to the word of God or taking away from the word of God. And you find that stated in Deuteronomy and you find that in the book of Proverbs and you find that in the book of Revelation. You find it in the beginning of the book, the end of the book, in the middle of the book. And in fact, you find it in the law, in the Pentateuch, and you find it in the poetry books, in the writing, and you find it in the prophecy books. You find it in all three categories of scripture, the entirety of the Tanakh. You find this idea of don't add to it and don't take anything from it. The writer of the Ecclesiastes says here, it's probably Solomon. He says, everything that God does is forever and nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. 
So if he has bestowed his everlasting love on you, how does he take that away? How does he take that back from you? And by the way, because it is the eternal, everlasting, fully sufficient love of God that is placed on you, and it is his eternal determination to save you, nothing needs to be added to that. That's why we say, you don't add anything to it. Your best righteousness is filthy rags. You don't add to it your works, your decision, your determination, your making Jesus Lord and Savior. You don't add to it because God has already determined it and nothing can be added to it or subtracted from it. It's already decided in the mind of God and that's good enough for every one of the people that he's saving. These are big, big concepts. These are big ideas and the more we can get a hold of them, the more secure we feel. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it or anything taken from it. And God does it so that men should fear before him that which has been, try to wrap your brain around this one. This is going to be a tough one. That which has been is now. And that which is to be has already been. And God requireth that which is past. We think in time categories. We can't help it. We think of past, present, future. So those ideas are being exploded here when it comes to the mind of God, the determination of God. It has nothing to do with time, which is why you can't in time and through the events of time lose a salvation that God has already determined to give you. Because God already knows everything that's going to occur in time and that which already has been is right now. God lives in the eternal present now. I don't know how to state that any other way. I know that's a very philosophical statement. But God can demand anything from any moment of all time, which is why when the judgment comes, the books are opened and every man is tried according to his deeds because God is keeping track of all the events that occur in time and he is able to call up everything that occurred in time and demand it right now, which is why we're told that he's able to require the things that are past. We think, well, it doesn't matter, it's past. It already happened. I did that, but that's past. God can bring it up right now. All of it. That which has been is now. That which is to be has already been. I don't even know how to figure that one out. That which is to be has already been. In the mind of God, it's already been. He already knew it was going to happen. We time-bound creatures think that the things that are happening right now are new things. But he already knew about these things. He already determined these things. He's already witnessed these things. He's already made his judgments and determinations about these things. Because he is the everlasting and eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Therefore, he can speak about time-bound things in eternal ways. 1 John 2.25 says, This is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. Okay, so if a God who has that kind of control over time-bound things, if he's not concerned with past or future, if everything is eternally now for him, then if he grants you eternal life, then it is eternally now for him. That is eternally an already established gift for him. He knew it was coming. He had determined it in days way past before the foundation of the world. And he's going to sustain it out into eternity because it is always right now for him. I know, is your head exploding? 
You kind of have to duct tape your head closed to get a hold of these things. But if you can look at salvation from God's perspective, which is all I'm encouraging you to do, if you can look at it from that perspective, you'll recognize that the perseverance of the saints is a foregone conclusion because our perseverance, our faith, our continuing repentance and love toward him are all gifts that he gave us based on his own determination and he doesn't change and his unchangeable, everlasting, eternal decree toward us can't be undermined. It can't be changed. And that is the only reason that any of us are sitting right here right now. We're only here listening to these things and believing these things and looking forward to the return of Christ. Believing everything that the Bible has to say, we're only doing it because the God who lives in the everlasting now is right now loving us and being gracious to us, being kind to us. And as I began with, Peter said, if that's the father, if that's the one you're addressing, if that's the one who you're trusting, then you ought to walk like it. Conduct yourselves inappropriate reverence and fear during the time of your stay here on earth. Hebrews 9.5. I'm talking about eternal life and eternal things, big things. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament... They which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Okay, so not just our salvation is eternal, spoken of by the eternal God through the eternal Christ, but everything that is laid up for us, everything we are looking forward to, everything we are expecting at the end of this Christian journey, when we leave this planet absent from the body, present with the Lord, there is an inheritance laid up for us that is an eternal inheritance. Can you stand this language? It's enough to make you want to jump out of your skin and run up and down the rows. and It's enough to make you Pentecostal. John 6, 47, verily, verily, I say to you, he that believes on me has, present tense, already has eternal life. The only reason you believe on Jesus is because you do already, present tense, possess eternal life. John 5, 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus speaking, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has, present tense, everlasting life. And, as if that weren't enough, Jesus clarifies. He has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Is passed. Already, present tense, you have this everlasting eternal inheritance. You are already promised and presently have eternal life dwelling in you by the Holy Spirit And you will not, as a result, come into condemnation. Wow, that's good news. Wow, it's good to know that no matter what you do, you can't mess this thing up. Yes, you are told, absolutely, that because God is your father and he's your redeemer and he's the one that you profess, that you should walk out your life according to that profession. Yes, except everyone in this room, every one of us, we all slip up. We all make mistakes, we all sin, we all still have to walk around in this sinful flesh, and we still have this depravity hanging around in our hearts and our minds. It's just really good to know that our security is not based on our hearts or minds or our behavior. Our security is based on the everlastingness of God 
who in the great eternal now is loving us and being gracious to us and that nothing in heaven, hell, or earth can make him change his mind. If he saved you, you are saved and he loved you before the foundation of the world and determined your salvation, wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life and therefore you are going to persevere in the faith all the way to the end of your life and then you are going to receive the inheritance that was determined for you since time immemorial. That, that's all good news. In that context, now we can read John 3.16. Now those words make sense. Now that you get all that behind it for God in this way so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him that's a category of people. All the believing. Pasho Pistuan. Those who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus talks in these everlasting terms. And when he talks about what he's going to do for his people, he says the life that he is going to give them is an eternal life, is an everlasting life. An elect believer, according to what the Bible says, this is not just some theological creation that came out of the Protestant Reformation. The reality is an elect chosen believer, people who are in that category are as secure in their salvation at this very point in their terrestrial life as you're ever going to be in eternity because your salvation and your security is not determined by you or by what you do, but by God who doesn't change. Is it worth reading Romans 8.28? I mean, it fits very well with everything we've been talking about. It says, we know, since we are so concerned that the things we might do here in this life, the things that we might think, the things that we are guilty of might separate us from the love of God. We know that all things work together for good. To whom? To a category of people. To them that love God. And those that love God, why do they love God? Because God chose them on purpose, gave them the ability to love, and sent his son for them. All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose. All I've been trying to say this morning is it's all according to his purpose. It's his doing. This is his enterprise. You have no authority here. You have no power, no ability here. You don't have the ability to decide it, and you don't have the ability to undecide it. And if you see people who do appear to undecide it, the Bible says it was because God had never given it to them to begin with. Here, let's read the words of Jesus and we'll call it a morning. Jesus says in Matthew 18, reading verses 11 to 14, For if the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost, what do you think? He's asking them to think about it. Consider this. Be logical. Think it through with me. If the Son of Man came to save that which is lost, then how think ye? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which has gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more over that sheep than the ninety and the nine which didn't go astray. Even so, in other words, Jesus just created that story about pursuing the one who wandered off so that he could say, even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If it is not the will of God that Jesus lose a single one of his sheep, 
Notice that he does mention, and I, I really like that he mentioned, straying sheep. Because I fit into that category several times in my life. It's walking around talking about bah, and then wandering off and doing my own thing. Claiming to be a sheep and then acting like the goats. And yet, because Jesus is a good shepherd, he will not lose any of the sheep that his father gave him. All that the father gave me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And if a sheep goes astray, he'll come and get you. Now, if someone goes astray, if someone leaves the faith and he doesn't go get them, guess what that proves? Not sheep. Not his sheep. Pigs, dogs, goats. But if they're his sheep, if they belong to him, he just said, he'll go get them. And then celebrate over them as he brings them back. By the way, that is also the right context for 2 Peter 3.9. Do you know 2 Peter 3.9? People like to quote 2 Peter 3.9 because it says the Father is not willing that any should perish. But actually what it says is he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Peter got that from Jesus. Jesus said that the Father is not willing that any of his little ones would perish. And so Peter says... And God is long-suffering toward us because he's not willing that any of us should perish. We are imperishable, not because of us, but because of the Father who chose us and the good shepherd who keeps us. That is why that good shepherd language is so important. If someone, one person who God elects, fails to inherit his heavenly promise, then Christ's own declaration, behold, I and the children which God has given me, that you find in Hebrews 2.13, that statement would be untrue. Jesus would have to return to his father in vain. He'd have to go back and say, I tried. I just couldn't keep some of them. The will of God, the will of the sovereign is so sure and so certain that it will indeed be carried out because there's no one who overthrows his decrees. That's what Jesus said. John 10, starting in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. They're mine, I've got them. They're in my grip. Neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand. My father, who gave them to me, is greater than everybody. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And I and my father are one. You have the united power of God himself and his son holding on to you, gripping you, keeping you within the sheepfold. And even if you wander off, he's going to come get you and he's going to bring you back for the very reason that you are indeed his sheep. And the way you become his sheep is that you are given to him by the Father. And you don't have the ability to mess up those kind of eternal decrees. John 6, 39. And this is the Father's will. Now we're talking about the definite determination of God. This is the will of God. It's always good to know what the will of God is. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. That of all that he has given to me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again on the last day. That's the will of God. That every single one of the people that were given to Jesus will be raised up on the last day and he will lose none. And do you think there is any power in heaven, hell, or earth that can overthrow the will and positive determination of God who decided that a definite group of people were going to be given to his son, to the glory of his son. Is there any way that measly little Kellen is going to overthrow that plan 
with his supposedly almighty free will? The answer is no, stop it, get over yourself. Yeah. We're nearly done. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father that the Father would continue to look after those chosen ones, even though he was leaving the planet. John 17, 12 says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me, I've kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So these verses unquestionably lead us to conclude that Jesus intends to bring each and every elect believer to himself, to their heavenly destiny, to the reward that was determined for them before the foundation of the world. And now you can ask me, go ahead and ask me, Jim, why do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? Why do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? Were you not listening? <laughs> it was a trick. <laughs> because of everything we've been looking at today. The more you know that this isn't your doing, it's God's doing, the more you are sure that the saints will persevere. And if they don't, the Bible says, not Jim says, not John Calvin says, not the Synod of Dort says, the Bible says, if they don't continue in the faith, it's because they weren't sheep to begin with. So, that should make you feel very secure. That should make you want to worship and praise and thank God who was under no obligation to you and yet committed himself to you. That's astounding. Sent his son to die for you. While you were an enemy, Christ died. That is just absolutely astounding grace. That's why these are called the doctrines of grace. But they really ought to drive you to your knees. They should not get you lifted up in pride. They should not make you think, wow, I am really something. God chose me, which is the way Calvinism is all too often portrayed. It should actually drive you to recognize that you are not the reason that any of this happened. It is eternal, astounding, unerring grace that is the reason these things are occurring. And you thank that God. You worship that God. You praise that God because he's the one that did all that everlastingly for you. Right? Right. All right. Grab a hymnal. Turn to number 40 in your hymnals. I guess it's no surprise after that sermon that we would sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. This is a a hymn of worship and praise toward God. Sing it to the only audience that makes any difference at all. Sing to God.
For listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.